Hi, I'm Billy Shore. You're listening to Add Passion and Stir. We're in Washington, D.C. today, and I'm with three guests. My sister, Debbie Shore, who I often forget to introduce, which is why I'm introducing you first, Thank Debbie, you co-founder of Share Our Strain. But I think I'm getting better at that. Um, and Alana Davidson, who had been a No Kid Hungry uh, youth ambassador and then went on to do some amazing things at her school, University of New Hampshire, that you're going to tell us about in a few minutes. And Chef Bobby Pratichith. So glad you're here. We've been talking before uh, we started recording about some of your food, and you've brought some of it today, and we're going to get to try it while we talk at some point here. Yeah. It's, gonna, it's, gonna, it's spicy, so it's going to waken all of us. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and this will be the first time that Billy Shore has had rice. Oh, it's a first. It's going to be a life It's going to happen right here on Add Passion and Stir. <laughs> he, he's only in his 60s and hasn't had rice. But, you know, today's, <laughs> today's a first. Never too late. It's, yeah. Uh, Debbie's pointing that out because she just had her 60th birthday, which she's very sensitive about. So oh, now she's, won't stop. she's mentioning whenever she meets somebody in their 60s, she <laughs> points out that he's in his 60s or she's in her 60s. Um, chef, your restaurant is Tip Cow. Um, yes. And your parents' restaurant is Bangkok Golden. Yeah. It's, you, you're uh, it's, involved it, in both? Yeah, we're it's a family restaurant. Um I guess primarily my parents are involved in like Bangkok Golden. I live in D.C., so my primary everyday life is in Tipcow. But you know we're we're growing. Um, we we like D.C. a lot, so uh, we're expanding. So hopefully, uh, so there's going to be some some new stuff coming up. So uh, I'm stuck here pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the reasons I'm glad you're both here is you really represent kind of uh, for me at least next generation of leadership in the culinary space and in the anti-hunger space. So uh, Debbie and I have been doing this work, Deb, for, what, 33 years now. Over 30 years. Um, We're just a tad past millennial. Yeah, we're just a (laughs) tad past millennial. Um, But we love it and we work with a great team, but we've also been very cognizant of the importance of bringing in kind of the next generation of leaders into this work. And I think that's you know, yeah, kind of I mean, what we're talking about here today. You know, I think as successful as we've been and as uh, innovative as we've been, we can't lose sight of the fact that the next generation is going to have some really fresh, bold ideas that we need to implement. So, you know, I'm really eager to hear um, from both of you what motivates you, what we think, what you think we have to offer um, this age group and how we can really, uh, you know, implement these new ideas and get and get young people involved because not only are they the future but as i said i think they're going to bring some uh, ideas that we have that we it's not possible for us to say one of our formative experiences debbie and i was both working in a presidential campaign back in the 1980s of gary hart senator gary hart from colorado who ran for president and he believed and he said it many times 23 year olds are the ones who change the world <laughs> and i don't are you still 23 chef 24. you just turned 24 okay 24. you're over the hill yeah. how old are you alana almost 22 you're almost 22 okay oh, perfect and, target age and, <laughs> and senator hart i mean literally as we would travel around and recruit organizers and and, and volunteers, he would always ask how old they were. And if they were anywhere literally between 22 and, you know, 28 or 30, he'd be, yes, we want them. That's, that's where the power and the ideas are going to come from. So, um, well, let's start by telling us a little bit about um, just your background. You, Chef, you've been in food. It's a family business, right, from the time you probably from the first time you can remember? Uh, well, the, the it started in uh, 2010. So it was pretty late into, like, my fa- my parents' careers up before that they worked in many different things that were like non-related to the restaurant industry um well i was born and raised in alexandria virginia not too far from here um and uh i grew up in a very lao household uh and is there a big La- is there a big lao community laotian community in the, the washington area yeah actually um which is surprising because i don't know i thought like 
I, we're, we're, it's a pretty unique like country and I didn't really expect to have a lot of uh, like a huge community in, in the area but uh, it seems like when during like the when people were, when they were traveling from like refugee camps uh, usually a lot of like my father and a lot of his friends and his cousins they immigrated to uh, North Virginia whereas my mother made her way into Berkeley California but they both came here directly from Laos uh, yeah, parents, well, uh, they, they did, and uh, also through different refugee camps, like right. in Philippines and Thailand, Vietnam. So uh, they went through a lot just to you know, try to make a better change, but I think that it's worth it, and you know they are really just enjoying it now. Um, so I was always around. I, I didn't really wasn't involved with them that much because they was work, were working a lot um, growing up, but I didn't. Quite understand. I thought they were just neglecting me because I maybe I did something wrong, but I didn't understand. I was just too young, and I was just like, but uh, so um, I spent a lot of time with like nannies and after school programs. So my my exposure with them was getting lesser, and so I started to not be interested into like my family culture much. I was just interested into like the American pop culture, and that was just because of the exposure. So I just. Then I eventually like, grew up, and then I just kind of forgot the language. I didn't really appreciate my family religion. I didn't want to go to, like, the temple and, like, prayer. I didn't really care all that stuff. And I remember, and then every time we would go to, like, these family gatherings, I used to get, like, verbally abused by all of my older generation <laughs> because they always tell me, like, oh, you're not loud because you have this American accent. You don't know what we're saying. But and it kind of hurt me because not because like I felt like I was disrespecting my parents because they try to spend some time when they can to teach me and I felt like that I needed to make I needed to find a way and I've always enjoyed the food but I didn't quite understand how you take humble ingredients and turn it to like something beautiful and delicious and I've just I visually would see that my mom and my aunts they would make the food and I just was very interested and at the same time there was a culinary arts program in my high school and I thought that that would be a an opportunity there to un- if like if I can't learn the language which I still can't because it's really difficult even <laughs> Spanish it's really it's, I, I, I know kitchen Spanish but is it only spoken in Lao which one at the, your language in the in the in the restaurant no in the world is Are it is, is it only in Laos is it only spoken? in Laos is Lao only spoken in Laos yes that language yeah okay. yeah and so uh, so it's pretty it's not a lot of people speak it yeah not no not not much and so uh, uh, so then I decided that I want to make food become my language if I sort of understand just like the historic history about it and like even just like why do like the terroir like why do these ingredients go together and maybe and like talking about the colonization in Laos and like how did they got these ingredients and like even cooking techniques and so before I even got to learn about like cooking or like the about making Lao food I needed to have a foundation so I had to start uh just going with the basics, going to culinary school and just learning knife cuts and cooking techniques while I'm just reading about the history of Laos and how it got started. Because if I just start reading a recipe from Laos and if I just start cooking it, I need to have like a good reference as to like, you know, like about it. Like why do they use woks and uh, well again, like why do they use ingredients? I need to understand that. So I started to do a lot of research on my own just to understand it. Cause this way like I can kind of get a feel about my culture a bit I feel like uh, you know it took me it took me a while I just actually started cooking lao food like over almost two and a half years now and I'm still learning and growing but I feel like that I can kind of relate 
and be like much more like understanding with my my family culture. So that's what brought you back to your culture. Was yeah. the food. Yeah. yeah, because I, I incredible. Yeah, because I I feel like the one thing the one thing that worries me is like when my parents' generation like when they're you know when they're when they're gone, and it's just my generation. And unfortunately, a lot of my generation are like more American. And so I think that like when they're gone, how do we express and con- the continuation of our culture mm-hmm. and like to our like our kids, the younger younger generation, uh, even my brother, he's fourteen. Like he's actually just like they're the same. Like they're very American, and I think that how do we keep expressing our culture? And that's the one thing that worries me. And I want to I want to show like younger de- generation to appreciate where our family is coming from. And I think that like my way of of cooking the food every day and learning um, with my parents is way for me to, to uh, be able to do that and we have somebody at this table who probably had Lao food for the very first time <laughs> in her life last night yes, Alana Davidson was at your restaurant you, it was your night off you weren't there yeah but Alana tell us what you had and what it was like and how it differed from other dining experiences you've had I don't remember what it's called <laughs> I'm sorry but it was delicious um, I remember it had peanuts and fermented Radish and eggs, so and it chef's reminded know what me it was. of was pad thai it? a little bit. Yeah, it's it's called kwami, which is like a, it's like pad thai. It has a little bit more sourness to it. So. Mm-hmm. I thought it had a little more flavor than pad thai. It was really good. Yeah. <laughs> that was that, we're gonna quote that right there. <laughs> <laughs> so that's your review, and it was your first time eating. Are you a, are you uh, adventurous uh, diner? Somewhat. Um, my favorite type of food is actually Vietnamese. Um, and I really like Indian food. So, but uh, this was my first time with this type of food. And Alana, you've been thinking about food in a slightly different way <laughs> from your experience at college at University of New Hampshire, where you got involved in a program because you discovered that there were actually college students who were going hungry. Yes. Which is not what most people think, particularly at a school like University of New Hampshire. Tell us a little bit about how this all started for you. Yeah, so I um, ended up going to college in nutrition and dietetics and thinking I wanted to work with athletes and be a dietitian. Um, And then I had an internship at a mental health center in New Haven, Connecticut, the summer after my freshman year. And we were working on a food transformation project, which is bringing locally grown products and fresh produce in for people who are mostly in public assistance um, or homeless. And it was kind of eye-opening to me. Growing up, I never, I was fortunate enough to never experience food insecurity myself or never go hungry. Um, and it made me feel guilty because I love fresh fruit. That's one of my favorite things. And I was like, everybody should have the opportunity to eat fresh fruit. Like, this is not okay. Um, and so I had an opportunity my sophomore year to do an independent research project on any college health topic of my choosing. And I decided to look at food insecurity because of my summer experience. And I did some research, and I found out that the USDA looks at food insecurity at the household level and the childhood level, but they don't look at college students explicitly. So we're not really sure how many college students might be facing this issue. And it's also a population that's left with little federal assistance because you no longer have school lunch, summer program, supper, um, most able-bodied people in college do not qualify for SNAP or formerly known as food stamps. Um, unless they're pregnant or having a child, they're not going to qualify for WIC. And most, so they, they fall between the cracks. Yeah. There's nobody there to there's serve no, them. There's no help. Um, and so I did a survey using the same survey the USDA uses, which is a validated survey. And we did a pilot study, and we found that 12% in a general nutrition class were food insecure. 
It was a class mostly of freshmen. Um, at the time in New Hampshire, the food insecurity rate was 10%, so it was a little higher. But it got me thinking, why is this you know, a little higher? We're a very wealthy state. Um, we're a pretty wealthy school. And so I decided I needed to do a bigger survey, and so I got institutional approval, and I worked with my advisor, and we sent out a much larger survey the fall of my junior year. We had To, to college students at University yes, of New Hampshire. and they were living on our Durham campus. So it was graduate and undergraduate, associate degree, um, all of it. And so we just tried to get it as far and wide as possible, and we had about 1,000 responses, and we found that 25% of those who responded were food insecure. Incredible. Wow. Which to me was, it was shocking at the time, the food insecurity rate now had gone up to about 12% in New Hampshire. So this was a little over double the household rate in New Hampshire. Alana, these are questions that the USDA uses that are in the nature of, is there a certain point every month where you run out of enough money to buy nutritious food? Those types of questions that enable you to declare them food Right, insecure. so it's a scoring, so it's like, um, did you ever ha- you know, run out of food and not have enough money to buy more? Have you ever been hungry but not eaten because you don't have enough money for food? And then so there's a the severity, so like if you get a score of zero, you're food secure. A one is kind of marginal food insecure. You're kind of worried, but you're doing okay. And then, it, you know, there's low food secure and then very low food secure. And then very low food secure is, you know, you're, you're, it's more of a chronic issue. You're actually issue. missing meals. You're right. Actually. You know, and I, I wonder, you know, with our work with No Kid Hungry, we find that one of the biggest reasons uh, that kids don't eat, right, that is because of the stigma, right? Mm-hmm. One of the biggest reasons mm-hmm. why uh, they don't access the, the school breakfast or the after-school meals because of the stigma. And I'm wondering if age-wise it's even a greater stigma for yeah. high school students. I mean, for college, college students. students. Yeah, well, they say in high school especially that stigma is But what worse. about, but what are so, you finding? Um, so we, I did, so we found that survey, and then I did some in-person interviews, uh, which I'm still transcribing, <laughs> um, with some very low food insecure students. So these are the ones who were having the most issues or the most trouble accessing food. Um, and I found they were eating one, maybe two meals a day. They could buy no fresh produce, even though they wanted to, because they couldn't afford it. No meat, very little meat. It was mostly rice and beans or pasta and jarred sauce. And they talked about how they wanted to eat healthy, but they couldn't. So they would either eat really well for a week and then basically not eat for two weeks, or they would just eat pretty bad over time, uh, which was really sad for me. And then going, I remember after I analyzed the data, I went into the dining hall and I was sitting there and I'm surround, you know, UNH, we're pretty known for our dining program. It's run by UNH. They try to do uh, very fresh produce and it's it's really exceptional food. I remember sitting there and looking around at all the food and just feeling so guilty because I knew that there were students outside of that dining hall who couldn't access this food. And a tremendous amount of that food gets wasted. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, at least on a lot of college campuses, I know that's been a very big issue. And we were talking about that. And I want to get Chef to talk about how food gets can be wasted in the food industry. But tell us what your response was to this kind of, you know, paradox of wonderful food, but not all kids accessing it. Yeah. So I knew I couldn't sit on this number um, and I had to do something about it. So I had met while I was analyzing the data and actually between the pilot study and this larger survey, I met with the president of UNH, the provost, and the dean of students. And the provost had invited me to present to the dean's council, which is a meeting with all the deans um, at the university. And I presented the findings. 
And then I worked with the dean of my college to have produce from the UNH Farms be donated. There is a local food pantry that's not on campus, but it's right next door. And then we worked with the director of the local food pantry to start student-only hours at the pantry once a week to kind of help reduce the stigma of students coming forward for assistance because community members also use the food pantry. So students could go during the normal hours with everyone in the community, or they could come when it's just run by UNH students for UNH students. Um, and then I also reached out to, at the time, Governor Maggie Hassan with the data. And so from all of these conversations... And what was the governor's response? They were shocked. She, sh Her and her office, I remember talking on the phone to her. So you actually connected with the governor yeah. of the state. Yeah. Well, I was... I was uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's not bad. Has this been your first act of activism, this whole experience? Yeah. Well, it wow. helped at the time. You know, it was during the election cycle and I was working on a campaign and that kind of helped me find a voice I didn't even know I was missing um, and kind of showed me the power of advocacy and how reachable, especially in New Hampshire, our elected officials are. They're, um, they're accessible. They're very accessible. Yep. It's insane. You walk into anything and, you yeah. know, you can reach them. But so I had met Governor Hassan at something um, and kind of told her my survey results. And she gave me her assistance card and was like, please contact us like with your data. Like, I want to learn more about this. And so I reached out to them and I talked to her education policy advisor on the phone who was a UNH alumni. And she was also shocked. And they were like, what can we do to help? And I was like, well, just your support and kind of, you know, acknowledging that this is an issue and we need to do something about it is a great step first. And so from all of these conversations, we started a task force run by the dean of students at UNH. Um, and it involved business services, health services, financial aid. And we kind of pull in as many people as we could. And then... At the same time, I had been reaching out to colleges and universities across the country to see what they were doing. So I reached out to Oregon State University and UC Berkeley, uh, Michigan State, and a few others. And so I kind of took an idea and combined some of the programs that were in existence, which we now call Swipe It Forward, which launched at UNH. And it's a program that we launched in December. Um, and our first task force meeting had been in February. So it was a very quick setup, which was incredible. And... It provides free meals in the dining halls to UNH students who are food insecure. And there's no application, which was something I was pushing for to help reduce stigma. And then the meals, you get up to 40 free meals in the dining hall. And, and the school's donating these. The school's, yeah. Okay. So students, or students, so donating you, them. students can donate their leftover meals. Um, faculty can donate. Because you use an electronic yeah, kind of benefits card, it's all right. through Blackboard, so it's all electronic. And okay. so we have like a finger scan system into the dining hall, and then you have – it's online. You're, so you can just go into the ID office and say, I want to donate this many meals, and they'll just take it out of your account and put it into the swipe bank, we're calling it, which holds all the meals. And then any um, alumni, community member, anyone who wants to can donate to the program. So it comes off of – you. so if I wanted to do it, and let's say I would have – I have three meals a day every day of the week – if I donate three meals, that's three meals I don't have. Right. Okay. So, so it's a lot of so it's kind of collecting the leftover yeah, meals that yeah. at the end of the semester that maybe you got you bought too many and you're not going to use them or whatever. Um, but even if you don't have because you can only have our swipes meal plan, which is a set number of meals, you can't donate from an unlimited plan because it gets too confusing. Um, so you can then just buy and donate meals if you want to help out fellow students. And we've raised over four thousand dollars so far. 
So we have a really good bank full of meals to give out to students. And then we have an email address that's swipeit.forward at unh.edu so that people then aren't intimidated by emailing the dean of students. They can just email this generic email and I say, I this. When are you going to come help? and work for Sheriff Strength? <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, so they can just say, I need help. And then, you know, based on their situation, they'll get free meals. And you've graduated. I just graduated, but yes. the program continues. Yes. And how about other college campuses? Um, or have other colleges said, we want to do something like this there? Is there anybody who's going to be the engine of you know expanding this and scaling it? Yeah, so I um, we added three more. I was the f- only student on the task force for the first few months. Um, and then we added a few more students in some freshmen and sophomores before I graduated who will continue with this at UNH. And then I also spent my last semester working with the New Hampshire Food Bank and College Compact to kind of go and um, talk about this program in Vermont and Connecticut and all around. Um, and a lot of colleges are interested in this, but a lot of them feel that they need to do the research first to understand you know, what's happening on their campus mm-hmm. before they start something like this so but they i know a few colleges have reached out to me and they are starting that research uh, chef talk to us about food waste in your uh how you see it in your industry does does the industry see it as an issue um and how do you manage it you're probably sensitive to the fact that sometimes you know food that could really be very important to somebody who can't afford it is is going to waste yeah i mean well <clears throat> sorry i just gotta say that was really inspiring um <laughs> uh i'm very very happy to hear that someone's doing that i wouldn't personally i wouldn't know how to start that so i'm very happy to see like how it's being so that was really, really thank amazing. you um yeah uh people are like always say like they're hungry and then there's like food being wasted and it's just like what can we do to like reduce that and i think that um like particularly i guess at at, at my restaurant like we try to save all all of our like scraps like i remember when I first started working with my parents, I remember just looking in the in the trash and I was just seeing like all this stuff in and I'm thinking to myself like I thought like when I was learning about Laos is like they utilize the entirety of a product, meaning like they use the stems of herbs, they use the skins of vegetables. Sometimes they don't even peel them because like countries of it's a third world country is very poor and they don't make a lot of money and so they would buy the ingredients and that they would use like if they would buy if they buy like a cow they, like they don't want they would call up all the villagers and then they all like they eat like everything not just like the like the rib or like the chuck of like the pig of uh, the beef that everyone uses they use like the heart doesn't your the, jungle menu have a lot of these kinds of foods on it yeah I, we have like, like what is what's your jungle menu what's that mean so it's a term that my mother uh sort of so developed appealing because it's menu. yeah so <laughs> it originally this start, is at tipco this is at tipco okay. it was called like going to the jungle it means like being in laos in a sense because it's uh it's very unusual i mean we're not like trying to create trends but we want like w- or we wanted to show people our culture in its honest integrity and so like we're not afraid to give people like the full impact we're not like we don't want to downsize or water down our flavor for like the western palate because if we're because we're the only law restaurant in dc if we're doing that then there's no purpose because then people are just going to leave the restaurant with not the full perception of of us and so we don't hold back on like all of our flavors and what we do so like if if the cuisine uses duck heads we'll i'll source the i'll find duck heads and and again like no one eats duck heads like the only place I use ducks is in Asia supermarket. 
you don't see it like Whole Foods. When you see a Whole Foods, <laughs> people get like offended or insulted. They're like, what are you doing here? Well, so. I want the record to reflect that even though I've never had rice, I have had warthog carpaccio <laughs> on my, oh, that's the most adventurous I've been on my Wait, honeymoon you, in South Africa. Warthog carpaccio. Warthog. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's pretty good, actually. Hmm. It doesn't sound like something that would end up on a Laotian jungle <laughs> menu. Probably, probably. Well, I try to find. But I haven't had duck yet. Yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit about nutrition and health. You, Alana, are going to graduate school for yeah. nutrition. Yes, nutrition. Where are you, you going to be? I'm going to be at Tufts University in the Friedman School. I'm getting my Master's of Science in Food Policy and Applied Nutrition. And so that you can do so what I can I mean, stay in the anti-hunger world. <laughs> <laughs> um, I hope to end up working on federal nutrition policy particularly around child nutrition reauthorization and the farm bill. And uh, is your sense that that's an area that's getting not enough attention or, I mean, what, I guess, I, I, what, the why field have you chosen to is, go into it? Yeah, the field is building, and I love nutrition because there's so many different areas you can go into. But at the same time, it's usually what's kind of left off the plate um, in a way because whenever there's, you know, an election or something, nutrition is never one of the national priorities that's discussed. You always talk about gun control or the economy or the environment, but no one really talks about nutrition. You know, no one's having a rally about how they're going to support the federal nutrition programs and we're going to increase SNAP funding or, you know, and it's how can we make nutrition relatable to everyone because everyone eats and food is such a emotional thing for so many people. But how can we have, you know, a conversation around nutrition in this country that's not like polarized or becoming too political? Because it shouldn't be because we all have to eat and we should, you know, we all want to be healthy. So how can we do that? And I've found over at least the last kind of three years working in this field, it's it's a little frustrating. And food is kind of used as a tool to keep people in poverty. Because if people don't have access, you know, we produce enough food in this country and we waste enough food in this country to feed everyone. So it's not a production problem. So the problem is why are people denied access to this food? Because the food is right there. They just can't get it. So when you don't have food, especially we're talking, you know, looking at studies of children or college students, if they don't have school breakfast or school lunch and they're not getting the nutrition that they need, they can get headaches or, you know, they might not do as well academically or they might get health problems and have to stay home. When looking at it from an educational standpoint, you know, if we can nourish people, if we can give them the food that they need to be successful in college, that they can do well in school, get good grades, and graduate, then they can move into the economy and be successful and get ahead. That's the message of the No Kid Hungry campaign right there. But when you say food is used as a tool Mm -hmm. to keep people in poverty, do you mean it in that intentional sense, or do you mean that, you know, de facto, you know, one of the consequences of people not having food is that they, you know, remain kind of Mm -hmm. stuck in poverty? I think it's both, and I think that's a conversation that can go many different ways. Yeah, because that's a pretty that's a pretty radical point of view, <laughs> right? Well, if you look at you know our food system was built, but on the backs of Mexican American immigrants, immigrants and slaves, and so the wealthy people got the abundance of food, and you know the poor were kind of left with scraps. Which is how it's always been, you know, looking at France, Revolutionary France, and Ratatouille, and, you know, all this stuff. And now a salad is deemed kind of a luxury, and it's, you know, just vegetables. And it's how did we get to the point where a salad is so expensive, and, you know, some people can have a salad 
and some people don't even know what cilantro or a cucumber looks like. And so we know, in a way, how to, you know, food insecurity is an economic issue. And so we know it's tied to wages and housing and income inequality and all these other issues. And so when we talk about, you know, defunding or block granting SNAP or, you know, block granting the school nutrition program, we know that we have the data to show that these programs work and these programs help kids and they help families. And so, you know, it's a com- it's a good conversation to have. What are the benefits and what are not to SNAP and how can we improve the program so maybe it's not as costly but it's helping more people. Um, and so I don't know. I think that it comes down to, you know, are you willing to donate you know, or have like 50 cents worth of your taxes go towards this program to help feed people who can't afford it? Right. I, I was interested in what you were saying in terms of like the national conversation. Every four years we have an election. And it's about a lot of things, but it's not about hunger or right. poverty or nutrition. And I was thinking, you know, right now our country's in the, you know, on kind of on the cusp of a potential crisis with North Korea. And so North Korea launches a missile, and our response is to have a, quote, show of force. Right. And the show of force is to have an aircraft carrier, you know, patrol the, you know, the kind of the Korean peninsula. Um, but, you know, what if a show of force was something different and more related and more intersecting with what we're talking about? George mm-hmm. Patton said that weapons don't win wars. People do. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what if our show of force was we're going to have the strongest generation in history because we're going to feed them and we're going to educate them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, our show of force, you know, vis-a-vis the rest of the world was to say we're going to invest in kids and health and nutrition and access to food for everybody. Now, that's a pretty different way that most people think of show of force. But I think there's an opportunity there to, Mm -hmm. you know, start to wake people up to the fact that these issues really do affect our nation's strength and our nation's health. Yeah. I mean, our generals and admirals knew this, right? Right. That's why they started these programs. That's right. They had the original idea that our kids need to be healthy and strong Mm -hmm. and they're going to, you know, protect the country. Yeah. I'm I'm just struck by after all these years of, um, you know, communicating Share Our Strength's message around hunger, that there are intelligent, well-read people who are you know, educated who do not understand, do not know that hunger exists mm-hmm. in in our country, and there are so many things connected to that that are important to people. You you talked about a lot of them: education, the economy, the workforce. I'm thinking about on the nutritional front, the importance of um, you know food and how it relates to your health, mm-hmm. right? N- not not just hunger, but good food mm. and how, you know, diet-related disease obesity. is, is uh, obesity, uh, diabetes, yeah. you know, uh, cholesterol, high blood pressure, all these things are, di- you know, many of them are, are diet-related. Um, and if people really understood how food could both either cure or prevent, um, you know, disease, mm-hmm. it, it's so illuminating. It's so inspiring to me. And it really is just very much under the radar. As, as we draw our conversation to a close, uh, since I've made you both representatives of the next generation of culinary and anti-hunger leaders, uh, tell us what you think the next uh, your generation should be thinking about and how we get more people to make some of the choices that um, that you've made, uh, Alana. Yeah, I think it, it, we have to get nutrition on kind of the national stage, and you know, if, I think hunger is kind of the silent killer, and it's. Food is the basis to everything. It's one of the four things we need to survive in life. Um, and so I think 
for the next generation. You know, there's a huge food justice movement right now and the farm to table movement. And how can we merge kind of these two movements together um, while kind of addressing some of the structural racism in our food system and kind of the, and looking at climate change? How can we be more sustainable? Um, and so I think it's exciting. There's a lot of young people in this field who are ready, who are, you know, starting to farm or are um, working at food banks or food pantries. And I think you know, it's, I want to go into it from a policy standpoint, because I know that's the only way we're really going to make significant change. Um, but I think that, like, the food bank and food pantry work is, you know, it's helping those people who are hungry right now, and we have to kind of merge the now and the longer goals. Um, and so I think just talking about this issue more and getting more people aware of it, I know with my data, when I took it to fellow students when I took it to leadership they were all shocked people were very surprised or people weren't you know not surprised and they knew other people who were also dealing with this issue and you do see your generation millennials younger people being drawn into kind of the broader food justice food policy sphere yeah well I mean I'm also surrounded by a lot of people in it um, right. so I might be a little biased towards that um, but I think people the field this field is growing and I think more more awareness is being brought to it especially you know in the future nutrition has become so much more important especially with you know obesity and type 2 diabetes on the rise as well as climate change and how do we create local food systems in case you know something happens um, for sustainability in the future and I um, there's definitely, I think, more young people, at least that I've seen, um, who are really excited to be in this field and kind of push it forward. And Chef Bobby, for a chef who's coming up in the field, uh, maybe five years behind you, any advice for <laughs> how somebody can um, become a, a kind of a force and a success in the industry as you have? Um, I think it's just, I think the one word that I've, you know, by myself it's just being persistent I think it's just uh, mm -hmm. if you have goals set in mind I think that you have to like you have to like work hard about it like nothing like you know comes easy like this industry that, that I'm in it's it's very tough and it requires a lot of your energy but I think that if it's if there's if uh, love and passion and dedication becomes a part of it then you'll go far it just mm -hmm. it's it's not gonna come like you know right here in front <laughs> of you you have to just it will come eventually, but again, just take those small victories and just really like you know work your heart. And like whatever you are trying to pursue, just just go for it. And I'm yeah. sure there's a lot of places where you just, and a lot of times where you just can't take no for an answer. You just wonder there's a barrier. You, you have one of the things we always talk about at Chair of Strength yeah. is when there's a barrier, you got to knock it down. When a door closes, you got to pick the lock. You got to mm -hmm. just kind of keep busting through yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. And love and passion are. Yeah, really yeah. important ingredients for success and yeah. yeah. everything. Yeah. Also, my you know my parents are relying on me, so I can't screw that up. <laughs> <laughs> and Alana, you said food is one of the four things you need. I don't know if love or passion were were part of the others, but food. What what are what are the four? Well, it's like air, shelter, food, food and water. water. Okay, but air. I was trying to think of the fourth. Yeah, yeah. but um, I think love. I had water and shelter. I think we should add love <laughs> to it. Yeah. Okay, I think you we need think, five yeah. things. Yeah. <laughs> I was taking air for granted. And, and we need to taste uh, what Bobby brought. And we need to taste what Bobby brought, uh, which we're going to do in just a moment. So you've been listening to Ad Passion and Stir here with Chef Bobby Predicheth. 
from TipCal yep. um, here in Washington, D.C., and Alana Davidson, who is the innovator behind Swipe It Forward, which started at the University of New Hampshire and is now going to continue there and probably some other schools as um, Alana heads to Tufts University to get her degree in nutrition. Thank you, Alana, for being with us. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. Chef Bobby, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Debbie Sharp, as always, thanks. You're welcome. (laughs) Get closer to the problems that you care about. There's a famous photographer named Robert Kappa who once said, if your pictures are not good enough, you're not close enough. Well, in the social change space, getting close, bearing witness, going into the community, working with people directly, getting an understanding of what they need, that's often the precursor to really powerful transformational change. Don't just post, don't just preach. Get your hands dirty and get involved. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our senior producer is Carrie Thompson. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhull. I'm Billy Shore. You're listening to Add Passion and Stir from Share Our Strength.